Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. The great impasse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, thanks to Paul Bloom, our listening audience is growing. How do you feel about advertising for condoms on our podcast? As long as we advertise for our very own Very Bad Wizard condoms with a little monkey on them and made really cheaply in China so that lots of babies will get made on our watch. We want to have like a survey soon, like a listener survey. I think we should ask, one of the questions should be, what scent should the Very Bad Wizard condoms, should they be ribbed or? I think you have, what size? We should label them all extra large. Uh, We have a guest on the podcast today, and it's our first repeat guest ever, Paul Bloom. Dave, why don't you handle the formal introductions? Paul is the something-something Regan chair professor at Yale University. The Brooks Um, and Susan Regan. Jeez. Brooks and Susan Regan at Yale University. Uh, One of my favorite... I know Tamler always gets gets on my case for saying that I love everybody, and and I. But this is um, Paul was my co advisor in grad school, and especially now that he supports our podcast so much, I, I extra love him, and uh, he's probably responsible for two thirds of my ideas. But that other third, he steals from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love and admire you too, David. Um, nice Thanks. to see you, Tamler. That's good. <laughs> That's all I get. Nice to see yeah, you. No, I'm, but no, I'm, I'm, I feel close to you, Tamler. I'm, I'm really glad to be back on. This is my favorite. This podcast is my favorite thing on the internet, actually. And um, I oh, follow oh. you guys religiously. Um, and so I'm really uh, honored to be your uh, first repeat guest. And you spread the word for your Coursera course, so we might as well take a time to say welcome to all the Coursera listeners who have stuck around for a second listening. Well, they'll <laughs> we probably tell. weeded out the ones who, who were deeply offended at, at our other podcast. But. Yeah, apparently a, a, a few listeners didn't think we were hard enough on Roman Polanski, is that? No, uh, no that, that's right. There were some of the discussion threads were uh, a little bit offended by your casual attitude towards forcible sexual assault on a young child <laughs> well, well no no, no. <laughs> but they, they just don't know you like i, I think I'm, we were making it i'm a, i'm opposed <laughs> oh sure now dave has opposed. thought about it in the, in the, in the previous weeks and he's now opposed it's the champion of reason i deliberated hard about whether or not that was morally appropriate don't, don't listen to your gut on this dave go, go for it. <laughs> I, I will i will say that i think what we were making is a descriptive claim that people aren't bothered anymore by Roman Polanski. They know what he did. And for some reason, it's not as much of an issue that the really dark side of his personal life when it comes to his movies, the way it is for Woody Allen, because they're different kind of director. I think that's, that's right. all I was saying. I was, I, I don't I, Dave may have been endorsing. Uh, <laughs> no, I wasn't. But but you know, we may have said it very poorly. <laughs> I grant. That. No, I, I, <laughs> sure. I, I think that's fair. And I, on the Coursera courses about moralities of everyday life, and there's a, a vibrant discussion board. And there was a thread on morality in the movies, 
which was people just mm-hmm. jumping in talking about different moral dilemmas. And so your podcast on that topic struck me as perfect. And then I, uh, I linked to it. And like I was telling you guys, I, I, my only regret is I didn't do this earlier. I mean, I think anybody interested in moral psychology or moral philosophy would get a lot out of your, your podcast. Well, thank you. It sounds like a, a, a great – this is the second time you've done the course, right? Um, I've done it in reality at Yale. Oh. And uh, this is my first uh, MOOC, my first time teaching it uh, online. And it's a huge amount of effort, surprisingly so, but very rewarding. You uh, for, for, for said legal, something to us about yeah. Sophie's Choice, that you didn't think it was really a dilemma. Right. So I had just um, two things to say about you guys discussed Sophie's Choice. And I could see it's, 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 you know, there's this scene, and I remember it, and I would never see it again, where Meryl right. Streep has to, you know, has to choose which of her children to sacrifice. And it is wrenching, but it right. doesn't strike me as a moral dilemma in that it's just a wrenching, ugly, horrific decision. But it's not as if it's a viable option to say, no, I'll let them both die. And in fact, you know, it's, it's sort of portrayed as an interesting dilemma because it's in a concentration camp and the Nazi and everything. But many parents face this dilemma in the real world where they have <laughs> they have to kill one of their kids. <laughs> well, well they, they can only save one of their kids. They have limited right. medicine, limited resources, and they can only save one of their kids. And so, it's, but uh, it's, you know, but you're not saying that it's you're not saying that it's not a dilemma because surely, you know, I mean, unless you really, really like one over the other, it's going to be sort of a yeah. pull. But see, I don't think that's it's the dilemma. A, the dilemma is: do you refuse? Do you refuse to make the choice? That's the other side. The other, I don't think the dilemma is which kid do you choose. Right. So, uh, so right. That's what I thought the moral dilemma was. And I don't think that, that, that there's a serious case to be made that you would opt out. Imagine you had two kids and they're both dying and you just had medicine for one. Is, I could see logically somebody could say, we should toss the medicine then. That's a ridiculous moral choice. But I mean, do you think the same way about the uh, the moral dilemma about the crying child, smothering the child versus letting the Nazi come in and hear you and killing all of you? Because um, that's another one that is sort of like that. If you just do the numbers, there's no choice. But it's not. But but the point of these dilemmas is that it's not about just about the numbers, right? It's interesting. I I, I find the Nazi smothering child case harder. I think because then you have to actively kill somebody. I find right, that, I find a med- medicine telling, case easier. Yeah, I was telling Tamler that 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 in defense of your position, that the fact that the Nazi's going to kill either two or one of your kids makes it it makes it the, it's simply a matter of math, really, right. really gut wrenching math. Yes. Um, but having to smother the baby. So Tamler, would it be if you had to just vote in the so there's you know ten villagers and one baby, and the one guy's going to do it. And you have to vote yes or no. Is that a dilemma? I, I get to vote whether the guy smothers his child. Right, yeah. right. Decision. I, no, I, I would vote. abstain from that vote. Really? That is up to, <laughs> that's up to him. You really would. Absolutely. So it's not a dilemma. <laughs> it's not a dilemma for me. It's a dilemma for that guy. It's not up the, to me to make that choice for, for, the, for him. I mean, obviously, I'd, I'll be dead if he says no. So I'm going to, uh, you know, obviously I'm hoping, I guess, that he does it, but... Samler, just to zoom in on this, you have two mm-hmm. kids and there's medicine for one. Do you really, would you toss the medicine? Well, no. That's, I, I, it's funny that you guys find the smothering of the child to be the morally relevant no, uh, difference, whereas actually choosing one child over another 
for who's going to live isn't that doesn't carry any moral weight. They, they, they according feel to what you guys are saying. I mean, I, I think that's weird. But it's weird that you don't find the the math to be. I do find the math to be incapable of adding up the fact that one is less than two, but just as you guys are capable of adding one is less than 10 when it comes to the smothering case, right? So it's not about the math. The math is clear on both sides. The question is whether smothering a child is worse than choosing one of your children to be shot. That's the question, right? If you want to say that one case is a real dilemma and the other isn't, it's just so much of a no-brainer. You know, like I don't see the actual physical I'm smothering versus I'm pointing to the child and having the Nazi kill that child when I could have pointed right. to the other. But why don't you, 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 you see the medicine? You could reduce the cases to one where the cruel Nazi hands you a gun and demands you shoot one of the kids or else they'd both mm-hmm. be shot. And actually, right. honestly, I now find that more difficult. I mean, not on sort of reason grounds, but on a gut feeling level, it seems even worse. But one of you said something really interesting. I forget which one it was, that the problem seems easier if you give somebody a spinner or let them flip a coin. Yeah. And that, that struck me as very interesting. And it relates to some actually research Christina Olson and Alex Shaw do with kids where they find that kids hate, hate to set up inequities. You know, you, you, you give kids five things to give to two people. They prefer to give <laughs> two and two and toss out the fifth. But if you give them That's a so spinner... They're fine with that. They're fine using it. And I think there's something really interesting there where it's not only random, but it's publicly random. Right. In fact, psychologically, it feels so different using a spinner versus doing a random thing in my head, like a child's nursery rhyme or say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think of a poem and count the syllables. And if it's odd, I'll, you know, do that. Right. The, the, the publicly verifiable randomness seems to feel so much better. So this was me that said that. I said I would if I was the Nazi and I was trying to be extra cruel, I wouldn't let them flip yeah, a coin. That's but right. now you yeah. flip a coin. You're not going to tell your kid, "Okay, Billy, your heads, <laughs> Janie, your tails," right? Right. But I actually would want them to know that I chose right. on a coin flip. I wouldn't want that. That's part of the reason I like the coin flip. The reason, you would want the is- little the kid that's going to die to know that it was random. Yes. Yeah, because or else he would think it was some feature of him. Yes, right. And also the other child be plagued with guilt. Yeah, to, to change the subject a little bit, uh, almost. This is this is all in service of Tamler. Um, uh, Paula, if if you could do one episode of Very Bad Wizards about any movie, which movie would it be? Like, uh, we're we talking about? Yeah, good question. The Prestige. The uh, Pre- Christopher Nolan's film about identity and magic and duplicates and pain and moral right. choices. It is, you know, look, Christopher Nolan is not a perfect director. I don't think, I, I actually... You know, he's not so good with female characters. I don't think his big action scenes are any good. But man, these are thoughtful, rich, and deep films. And The Prestige is, is my favorite. And, and Prestige is on top there because he doesn't require big action shots. That's right. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, okay, so I, I, I got to bring this up because I don't know. I don't remember if I've had this conversation with you, Paul. But uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen The Prestige, stop right here. Um, he dies every single time, right? Yeah, I mean this. This is Every like time, the, yeah. the problem. Yeah, the problem to me with the transporter in Star Trek that breaks you up here on the surface and then, or on the ship, and then reconstitutes you on the surface. I think every single time people get in there, they die, and they act as if it's them, and they're confident yep. that it's them, but it's not them. And people accuse me of some sort of dualism for holding this belief, but. I don't I, I, I don't. I agree with you so much on this. I've always been puzzled yeah. by people who hold differing intuition. With the way the transporter works is it makes a duplicate of you in some other place and then vaporizes yeah. you. 
And my thought is, exactly. why vaporize you? Why don't you just have Scotty come out with an axe and hit you in the face with it? <laughs> well, then it would make clear what they're trying to hide, which is you're dead. This would be some form of the nob effect, about <laughs> depending on the manner in which you were killed. <laughs> An asymmetry. No, you would be dead, and you're dead. And and what I, the intuition that I try to pull is, if there is an accident and they forgot to kill you up there, there's another guy down there, you, and you're both standing next to each other. One of you has a real claim. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but people say no, no, they have an equal claim. No, it doesn't have. Any- so so Bruce Hood and I want to do an experiment like this. Well, we've done experiments with duplicating machines where we duplicate objects and, um, and we look at different phenomena having to do with this. And the experiment was we'd introduce kids to a, to a duplicating machine, two closets standing right next to each other. The mother walks into one, screens are, are dropped, and then he steps out of the other one. And we want to see if kids think that she's a duplicate and get sort of a form of cop grass syndrome where they see, they, right. they know she's... They, she looks like the mom, but she's not really the mom. You're, and then, you're and, fuck with little kids. Yeah, so so we would do this in England where there's no laws. So, and, so, but then the other option they're just is, they're, no they're fucked like, anyway because they grow like they're growing up in England. So we put kids in the closet, and then we move around the furniture, and then the kid opens the door, and we tell him he's a duplicate. <laughs> now, there's no. I'm just curious how they would respond. But we're not going to do this with with nightmares and like <laughs> yes, you know, <laughs> lifelong trauma. Yes. No. Uh, here's my question, though. Are, are you guys making some philosophical point, or are you saying you would never step into the vaporizer? I'm saying I would never step into the vaporizer. Well, well, I think so, I'd die. Well, both. I, well, both. I don't like to be. I don't like to be. I don't want to be killed. Once I'm killed, yeah. I don't care what they do afterwards. That's a so preference. you wouldn't care whether they, re, they reconstituted you in some other planet where you just have all the same memories and you feel like yourself? And Well, no, I guess that's no. the and, question. And, and, and that, verb, that verb, reconstitute, is question-begging. So yeah. after I'm dead, if they create some guy who looks like me and thinks he's me in another planet, I don't have strong feelings about that. I'm mostly worried about the being dead. And I assume that's right. David's what, intuition, what too. What settles that question? That's what I, I guess I don't get. Well, what settles like, the question is... You ask somebody, I'm, I find it, I'm, I'm having a failure of imagination of why people find this a hard question. I know. You say to somebody, how would you feel if I shot you in the head? And then people say, well, I wouldn't like that at all. Okay, what if I shot you in the head? And then on another planet, I did such and so. People say, I don't like the shooting in the head part. <laughs> no, and, no, but, right? but, 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 but people yeah. might feel like it's not like killing you if you then wake up and you have all the same memories. And but you, you won't. But that's the part. The part is that... that that you won't wake up unless you have some weird view of death in which your soul can right. transfer over to the, the to the guy down there. It's not dualist right? to identify myself with my brain. And this brain right, would right. die. So they could the other thing I say is you could simply reconstitute someone right next to you. Okay? So I make a Tamler and I put that in Tamler B, Tamler Prime right next to you, and I have a gun and I say, All right, Tamler, you original Tamler. Because I put a little red mark on your forehead. Um, would you prefer that I shoot you or that guy? And you can't tell me that you'd be indifferent. I, I'm just trying to get over what a great world that is where there are two of me. Uh, <laughs> There's a Michael Keaton movie about that. I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, yeah, that I guess I would say would, shoot would that, that, that really Tamler. But, like <laughs> but here's the thing. If you said Eliza's going to break oh. her leg unless you get into this vaporizer machine. No, well... 
then yeah, I would but, do it. But if you well, said Eliza's going to break her leg unless you kill yourself, then I wouldn't do it. But what do you think about the? But what did you answer the option that I gave you? What? Oh, I'm shooting one yeah, of you. Yeah, I said shoot the other guy if it's me. But then, I mean, who are you asking? You're you're begging the question by asking by saying that it's me that you're asking. No, nothing has ever happened to you. It would be as if I put an X on your forehead and did nothing, as as Paul was trying to point out. It would be as if I hadn't duplicated you, put an X on your forehead and said, do you want me to shoot you? You can't say that me duplicating you with a Tamler Prime on your right all of a sudden changes all of the self-interest and the continuity of your consciousness that you have. Well, I definitely, I mean, I, here's my question to you. Here's, I, and I can't believe I have two psychologists giving me these fucked up philosopher thought experiments that I normally make jerk off motions to. It'd be, it'd be nice if you answered. <laughs> well, we I, I am we answering. can't see what motions you're making because you're struggling. <laughs> well, because I can't, I, I can't stand up. That's the problem. Like, I won't be able to stand up for another like, month and a half. If, oh, now I feel if you, not if, a you, man. if you said, you're get into this machine and they'll reconstitute you with a fully repaired Achilles tendon, <laughs> I would do it. I would do it right now. Because you're calling it reconstitute. Because I can't piss standing up. The, obviously, I, the new me would be able to take a piss standing up. And wouldn't I welcome that. It would be some That's guy who thought he was you. But he would, he would take a piss standing up. Right. Star Trek benefits from a visual illusion. You see one person fade away. Then the same person gets reconstituted elsewhere. It's irresistible to think of it as, a sh- as motion, almost. Right. And in fact, most You're people, shooting the atoms. And in fact, most people think of a transport as shooting your atoms from one place to another. But so now, but if, but for me, the intuition goes away entirely if instead of the vaporizing, you have a gun and you shoot the person in the head, then you bury them, and then you do something on another planet where they reemerge. And that's the prestige. Yes, that's the prestige. You drown them. But but let me ask you this, okay? I've answered your question. I think if I, I I'm happy to answer mm-hmm. any questions I haven't answered. But you both have kids, right? Would you get into this Star Trek vaporizer if it would, uh, Dave, I'll ask you, if it would save Bella from getting a broken leg? No. Uh-huh. No. No, because I'm going to die and never see her again. That's well, no, the whole no, no. point. They, they, yeah, it'll be a doppelganger and he'll raise her, but I'm not going to ever see her again. Why well, would I get into it? It won't be a doppelganger because doppelgangers don't have your exact memories and all right they are that kind of person then (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) well i can't say reconstitute but you can say doppelganger the whole point is that that machine would work if you were alive right so it's not reconstitution i don't think you're getting that's a that's a good point and 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 tamler you're right if after i'm killed somebody who was just like me exactly took care of my kids it would be a comfort to that right but but it's but I'd still be dead. So, so there's nothing. There's no difference. Is there any difference between you dying and you being vaporized to this other planet and then coming back? Is there any difference between those two things beyond, over and above that you would have, there would be somebody to take care of your kids and stuff yeah. like that? For, for, Is there for any me, difference? For me, none. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. David, do you Dave, same. No, aside from my daughter thinking that yeah. I didn't die. Right. I mean, and of course, there'd be, a, that, yeah. there'd be a, a guy around who believed himself to be you. Actually, no. This is, Actually, no, because he'd be smart enough once he's created to recognize that he's. Uh, that his, but he knows. Yeah, he, he knows. But in, in the end, it wouldn't make a difference. I mean, he, he'd, he'd say, OK, fine. I was born three seconds ago. I accept that intellectually. Right. But but right, you right, feel right. Like, it's like it's like denying free will. Yeah. 
<laughs> hey, hey, good segue. Yeah, this is the opening segment, the funny segment, where we talk about <laughs> killing kids, smothering kids, and, and killing parents. And we'll be back to talk about more serious and somber things in segment two. If you'd like to support our efforts, please go to the support page of our website, verybadwizards.com. There are two ways you can contribute there. You can send us a donation on the PayPal link, and we really appreciate all donations, big and small. Second, you can click on the Amazon link on the support page before you shop, and then we'll get a small cut of whatever you purchase at Amazon at no cost to you. So please bookmark the support page and click on the link whenever you shop at Amazon. For now, this only works for people in the United States, but we're looking into putting up a link for our listeners around the world. We also love to hear what you think about the podcast. You can rate us on iTunes, write a review there as well if you wish. Please like us on Facebook and comment on our posts there. Join in the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter individually and tweet us at at Peas and at Tamler. And you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You don't have to be diplomatic. We like it rough. Finally, check out what may well be the most popular element of this podcast, our Tumblr page, created, designed, and managed by Matt Welsh. You can find this at verybadwizards.tumblr.com. Matt also runs our Twitter account, at verybadwizards. Be sure to follow us there. Thanks. Back to the show. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We have uh, Paul Bloom here from Yale University. And all right, we're done with the lighthearted topics. We have to talk internet controversy. <laughs> so Paul Paul just wrote a piece um, in The Atlantic about sort of the power of reason. I guess, Paul, maybe you can you can start by saying who, who you were targeting. It's, it's called the war on reason. So who's, who's making this war? More than just about anything I've written, I'm surprised about a response on this and that people are responding to the stuff which I thought was uncontroversial and right. they're ignoring the thing which I think is controversial. So the point of the article is to defend reason and rationality against certain scholars uh, and, and popular writers who believe that the lessons of social psychology show that we're fundamentally irrational beings. We're driven by our unconscious, by our gut feelings, and reason deliberation plays little or no role in mental life. And these views are held to varying extents by well, a lot of social psychologists. Uh, John Haidt has championed this view, particularly with regard to morality. Um, popular writers like Malcolm Gladwell and David Brooks have defended it at length. And um, these are all... Behavioral economists as well, right? And, and, and many behavioral economists. And so these are, these are scholars I respect, I read, I, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to be arguing with my friends. And that, that's the argument I make. But before doing so, just sort of to clear the air, I just point out that the idea that humans can reason and make choices and weigh options is fully consistent with the deterministic worldview. Right. And I think that was enough, a source of confusion. Yeah, oddly enough, everyone jumped on that. And maybe it's just because people only read the first two pages of anything. But, but to be <laughs> fair, you're lumping people like Sam Harris you, because you lead off with him in this essay called The War on Reason as, as, as one of these people who's fundamentally attacking reason because he calls us biochemical puppets. Yeah, I, because, I should, actually, I should yeah. actually clarify that. So, for instance, I, I disagree strongly with David Eagleman, who wrote a, a great Atlantic article very much attacking reason. But I don't have a beef with Sam, at least not about this. 
So I, 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 it's true. I, I talk. I use this quote: "Biochemical puppets" to represent a view that I disagree with. But Sam is, if anything, you know, an ardent champion of reason and rationality. Uh, he's argued that this should, you know, hold tremendous sway over our lives as part of his attack on religion. He views it as the foundation for morality. So I don't disagree with Sam on this. I think his phrase "biochemical puppets" is an awful one. Here, here we should we should say that there was a better phrase introduced. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so Tamler Summers over Twitter <laughs> produced a phrase which I hope catches on. Go ahead, Tamler. Uh, it was biochemical rumbas. <laughs> which, I, you know what? That you have to write an article with that title. Yeah, this might be what you're known for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. uh, you know, I, that's that's better than being completely unknown, which is what I am right now. So. <laughs> It was sort of a joke, but then I also – but but sort of not because I think your problem with puppets is the right problem with the, the metaphor of puppets, which is that puppets has this idea that there's somebody in control, a conscious manipulator in control uh, of the puppet. And in right. fact, I was just watching with my family over the weekend the musical Chicago, mm-hmm. and there's that song, We Both Reached for the Gun, where the lawyer has everybody on puppets and is making them say what he wants them to say for a specific goal. And that's what you think of when you think of puppets, is a puppeteer that's sort of orchestrating everything, whereas and, and Roomba's just sort it's of It's an kidding. algorithm, but it's an internal algorithm. That's right. Yeah. So it's a horrible metaphor, and it's actually a good way of describing a view, which I think is, is really mistaken, that humans have no agency, no rationality. Um, we're just slaves to somebody else. But it's not actually Sam Harris's view. He came up with the phrase, and, and he uses you know, the cover of his book, uh, Free Will, is uh is is marionettes on strings and wasn't there a boy band video like that (laughs) (laughs) i wouldn't know david (laughs) it was when i was a young girl okay (laughs) but the vaporizer didn't work it turned (laughs) but i should be clear i don't actually disagree with sam at all over i mean we might find other things to disagree about about morality and about free will in the end i might be more compatibilist than he is but he has you know in it he certainly agrees that reason and rationality is fully compatible with a deterministic worldview. And that's as compatible as I need to be. This is what I found really interesting about the reaction to the article is that people view it as an article about free will right, uh, and moral responsibility. This is what Jerry Coyne, essentially, it was like your whole article was about free will if you, if you just read his critique. And, uh, you know, Sam Harris, I guess, just so far on Twitter. And then why do you think that that's the reaction to it, given the actual content of the article? I think this is one of these issues which gets very um, polarized. Certainly my article could be, if you wanted to sort of take sides, you could see it being on a compatibilist side. Because I make a point about how reason and rationality, and I also use the term choice, is fully compatible with the deterministic worldview. Now, I actually think that this is, not very controversial. I think actually both Sam Harris and also Jerry Coyne would agree with me on this. But maybe that's why it's got so much attention for, for this part. I mean, I'm not one to shy away from, from a disagreement, but I'm just kind of amazed that people are so focused on this. I think that actually you should take some, some blame for this um, for, and that you could have predicted this reaction because I think what you're doing in responding to social psychologists is granting them to two similar arguments that really don't have much to do with each other at all. So one is that um, 
surely we can't be free if we don't have conscious uh, control over our own actions. Mm-hmm. So there's the reduction of agency and deliberation is, is an illusion. And that poses a threat to free will. Um, it also is making the claim that we can't reason. Yeah. That is, that reasoning is inert. Those are two very different claims because, as you point out, um, you could be a fully reasoning creature that's completely determined. Yeah. But what that means is that in lumping those two together, you get the champions of reason like, like Sam Harris and Jerry Coyne saying, what the hell are you doing talking about free will? Although you never actually use the I never, I never use the term yeah. free will. And, it, yeah. you know, I'm boring You're criminal. flirting with that. I'm, You're flirting boring. with it because you talk about moral responsibility. Right. Mm-hmm. There, there's boring terminological issues here. So I think free will doesn't exist because I think free will tends to refer to a doctrine that doesn't exist. Some right. people who think, some determinists like, like Dan Dennett say, free will does exist, we just have wrong ideas about it. And, and I'm not sure how exciting that debate is. So some of it's terminological. I mentioned responsibility or moral responsibility, and that's a good thing to, to, to kind of poke me about because... I'm actually undecided on that. I, I, and and I, that I know, is know, the big I, issue. Right. I know for anything that ends up on the internet, it's really weird to say that I don't know the answer. But is moral responsibility compatible with determinism? I don't know. In the article, you do know. Uh-oh. I mean, you, oh, no. you, you say uh, it's not hard to see the psychological distinction between the cold-blooded planning of a mafia hitman and the bizarre actions of a paranoid schizophrenic. As you read this article, your actions are determined by physical law, but unless you have been drugged or have a gun to your head or are acting under the influence of a behavior-changing brain tumor, reading it is what you have chosen to do. You have reasons for that choice. You can decide to stop reading if you want. If you should be doing something else right now, picking up a child at school, say, or standing watch at your security post, your decision to continue reading is something you are morally responsible for. That doesn't sound like somebody who's undecided about the moral responsibility question, right? Your decision right now is something you are morally responsible for, absent some of yeah. these other excusing conditions. Yeah, I, I believe every word of that. I think in the, I think in the end, I, I want to think harder on what it means to be morally responsible. And, yeah. But certainly, I think that we choose, we decide, we make, this, we, we make judgments, we all of these sort of folk psychological notions, although we're, we're mistaken in part about them, we're dualists and whatever, um, will hold true in a, in a proper deterministic scientific theory of the mind. I also think that, that I'm perfectly comfortable saying we're morally responsible for some things and not others. I mean, outside of a sort of philosophical mode, um, right. we, we talk that but way all the time, and these are meaningful things to say. So yeah, there's something about the law that, that I've argued this to that that what humans care about is agency so were there the right mental states when somebody and right before somebody was doing uh, was committing a crime or engaged in an action did they intend something did they have the capacity to distinguish that that thing was a wrong thing and those are the right kinds of conditions and that's that's in fact why we don't like psychopaths because right. they seem to meet those criteria uh, a schizophrenic on the other hand does not both of those people could be, at the end of the day, metaphysically completely determined. It's just that we care about, about agency. But, but right. here's, the, here's the – so you asked, I think, on Twitter, mm-hmm. where's the disagreement between you and Sam Harris and where's the disagreement between you and Jerry Coyne? It's right there. It's that sentence that you just said that, that this is something we're morally responsible for because 
that brings up the connotation of deserve blame, possibly deserve punishment if you make the choice to commit some sort of more serious wrongdoing, more serious than reading your article, right? <laughs> That's uh, just negligence. And so, so I've always thought that this is where all the substantive disagreement among naturalists you all understand that you deliberate. You all understand right. that you know you can you can think and you can reason, and that that's compatible with determinism. Everybody's on board with that, or almost everybody. The question is whether you can deserve blame for yeah. the results or the products of that reasoning. So, so let me. Uh, that's fair enough. Let me ask you something, and and I, I don't mean this sort of as a rhetorical trick, but where did but, you get that hat? <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you something else. Well, thank you um, for asking. <laughs> so Harris and Coyne are both really prolific. If I went through their work, and they write a lot about, about moral issues and right and wrong, I bet I find phrases like, so-and-so is responsible for this. So-and-so is to blame for this. Good work, so-and-so. Rich moral language. Um, right. More, you know, this is grotesque. This is terrible. You know, he should be embarrassed he did this. Now... I don't mean to duck the question, because I think they could say that they're just talking loosely or metaphorically. But I don't, it feels odd that I, should feel, that I should be defensive about saying that we're morally responsible for some things and not others. Because outside of a sort of extremely careful philosophical mode, everybody talks this way and everybody thinks this way. I agree with you that people talk in that language and that you don't necessarily have to be defensive about it because you weren't thinking about it necessarily in these terms. But the, the, the thing about it that, that I think makes it different is that it can be the grounding, it can be the basis to cause other people's suffering when it comes to punishment. That word moral responsibility is the basis for yeah. causing other people's suffering. It's the basis for a theory of retribution and cr criminal punishment where you can cause other people's suffering because they deserve it, not because it brings about any benefits to society, but simply because they were morally responsible for their wrongdoing and ought to suffer as a result. So that moral responsibility term is loaded in a way that some of these other terms that we toss around like he should be embarrassed or he should be ashamed sure. or isn't you but know can I, yeah can yeah. i ask then though isn't it the case that um even people like coin and harris would distinguish between actions that were were committed under sort of these fully agentic intentional con uh, that met the, yes. the criteria mean, only, in the, only in terms of their consequentialist you right know, but they do make the distinction so harris is explicit that there's a uh, uh, a real psychological difference between voluntary and involuntary action. And involuntary, right. Um, okay. And, but, but yeah, but they would not say, but Harris and most, and Coyne, and certainly Dennett as well, actually, are purely consequentialists about punishment. Yeah. I, I am not sure I am. This is the part where I'm undecided about. Right. I mean, I'm with you, Paul. I'm, right now, I'm just sort of diagnosing where it is, because no, I think... You, you might be right. And, and, and I'm on... I'm not apologizing for it, and I'm not disavowing for it, but avowing it. But I, I can see your diagnosis. I think it's right, and I, it's something I'm struggling with. A very special episode. Yes, <laughs> I, 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 I need a moment. Okay, but, this is where but, we should have a video because Paul, like, just a single tear is, is running no. down. <laughs> you also need background right music. But, so fair enough. All I'll say is nothing in the rest of the article rests on that. I'll, I'll own and I'll defend anything I say, but the, but the major thrust, 
thrust of the paper was defending reason and rationality. Right. right. It's something that I'm, I've been on board with. So my, I wanted to bring up one thing, which is that in our prescient piece, in our reply to Heightened in, in uh, 2003, we weren't nearly as restrictive in, in our sort of definition of a, of a prototypical reasoning event. Mm-hmm. You say – you actually end the essay by saying, um, but as Aristotle recognized long ago, what's so interesting about us is our capacity for reason, which reigns over all. If you miss this, you miss almost everything that matters. But the way that you've defined reason throughout is really this deliberative part. Yeah. And, and I, cer- certainly there are things that, um, that we're responsible for. Well, two things. One, uh, we, we in, in our original paper, sort of talked about reasoning at time one influencing all sorts of automatic attitudes and, and that's right. at time two. Um, but two, to the responsibility uh, aspect it's pretty clear that people hold individuals responsible for things that have been unreasoned and, and impulsive, right? And that's, in fact, much of what we mean by character that's when right. we say, right, somebody, somebody did something uh, impulsively out of an empathic reaction, right? Um, that's right. And, and you can bypass reason altogether. We're not, but people aren't naive Kantians. They don't say that just because you were so affected by that, that African child commercial and you gave all your money to them that you don't deserve blame. I mean, praise. <laughs> <laughs> you also just blame saving the African. <laughs> well, you know, maybe you took it away from from nice white babies. <laughs> no, I, 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 I I see another beep coming. <laughs> I don't be, I don't need to censor myself. Uh, I I agree with both points. Do. I mean, the article wasn't about morality, and 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 if, if it was about moral judgments, it's true that that is too narrow a claim to say we only judge people morally for things that were deliberative, intentional, reasoned, and so on. Certainly, we judge somebody morally for losing their temper, or you know, right. or for, for a sudden act of kindness, and that's just sort of a separate issue. Your point about reason is correct too. To make my argument, I wanted to deal with the sort of prototypical case of reason, deliberative, thoughtful, conscious reason. Right. So nobody could point out and say, "Well, that's not really reason," or "That's just that's just a fancy form of intuition," and so on. So if right. I talked about unconscious reason and so on, right. Um, right. People, it, it would blur the issue a bit. But I do think, right. I think reason's a broader category. I mean, I never explicitly define it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of patterns of inference that are broadly truth-preserving. Um, right. When you talk about rational behavior, you think of, towards a goal, you think of behavior that seems efficacious. You know, right. if you're thirsty, it's rational to get a glass of water. It's irrational to bang your head against a wall right. and so on. Okay, and here's don't let Latin. Dave press you into giving necessary and sufficient conditions. <laughs> like this is well, a conceptual analysis I, free I, zone this, uh, on your couch. <laughs> um, <laughs> the <laughs> the last thing that I want to push you on a little bit is is aren't you swinging a bit? And we had an email exchange about this where where you know you're like all of these findings are small and trivial and yeah. they don't really make yeah. a difference. And, and you have a great line: statistical significance doesn't mean actual significance yeah. or right. something which I is fair that. that's yeah. true I mean, yeah. but yeah. but um i don't really think that you have to downplay the importance of even if even if it's hugely pervasive that a lot of important decisions are made in a purely non-reasoned manner i don't know that you have positive evidence that that those claims really don't right the studies might not show it but Wait, can you don't you have just, just to give a little evidence. background about what yeah. you guys are talking about so can you explain what exactly it is that paul's doing that you're objecting to just you know in the paper he built paul builds his argument by saying 
social psychologists uh, have argued that, you know, our attitudes and our behaviors and our judgments are largely unconscious. And so he lists some of the common findings. And influenced by these other factors. Influenced by sort of these external factors that we don't even realize are influencing us. And in order to champion reason, one of the steps that he takes is by saying these don't matter. When in reality, all you need to say is reason does matter. It was their mistake to say that reason doesn't matter just because of these findings. But there are some of these findings where they're really, they really, really are important and novel and interesting and challenging to our personal right. views about, about how we make decisions. And you sort of glance over them and say, well, these, true, these are important, but. I'm, I'm more skeptical than you are. So, so you're right. And, and you actually, you know, your email, our email correspondence was useful, corrected to some things I was going to say previously before I spoke with mm-hmm. you. So there's some big effects. So the size of the plate you're given powerfully influences how much food you eat. Right. And that's not a subtle effect. Right. Then there's subtle effect. Whether you vote for a program, an education program in a school versus not a school mm-hmm. does have an effect. You're more likely to do so if you do it in a school, but it's a very subtle effect. And, and some are subtle, some are big. I think, um, I think more some are also under conditions, right, that are never really achieved in real life. They're experimental but, conditions. But some, but yeah, but some are field studies, right. right? And those are the ones that I pointed Paul to, like the voting one and then the Lavov uh, judge, Israeli judge ones, uh, the price of a car, you know, like $30,000 difference and changing the order of the presentation of the options. Let's set aside the methodological issues and, the you know, all of the sort of doubt on some of these studies and accept that some of these findings are true. So um, I think that it does enough to undermine your claim uh, that these findings aren't important to just show that parole decisions and huge monetary purchases and voting behavior can be influenced in this irrational manner. These, these are not just stimuli in a lab. Right. Um... I certainly agree, and I say so, that these, uncon- that these unconscious influences, these environmental influences have an effect. But to some extent, my argument is a matter of degree. I'd be, in- I'd be embarrassingly wrong if it turned out that 95% of our behavior, our 99.88 or whatever John Bard suggested, was the result <laughs> of these unconscious influences. Then I could say reason plays a small role, but it'd be such a tiny role. Right. I just think that as a matter of fact, and it's an empirical claim, it's not a sort of, it's an empirical claim and it might be right for one domain and wrong for another domain, right. that, that these effects don't play as much of a role as people think they do. Um, so maybe I'm more docile if the room is pink. Right. Maybe I'm harsher if the criminal defendant is, it has dark skin and light skin. And a hundred other examples of that. I, you know, I agree with those, but I don't think those are actually going to be hugely real world effects. I don't think the story of human violence is going to have much to do in the end with the color of the room. I don't think the story of our moral judgments, our criminal judgments, is actually going to have much to do with race and gender. Yeah, it, but, but it, does, it seems like an independent argument. I mean, it is a weird thing to correct for um, th- this view because the whole point of the, the, all of this research was everybody thinks that reasoning determines everything. And so... To undermine that claim, all you need is a few right. really relevant examples. And here, and here you're, you're at this point in, in the history of social psychological science where you're having to make the other claim. Um, but I also don't think that, that it requires you to, to deny the importance of some of these. these no, it, big it's true enough. But I, I mean, we both know people who, at least in the classroom, will say something like, your choice on which job to take is entirely determined by factors out of your control. Your right. choice of who to marry, 
whether to order coffee or tea. It's just, it's determined by, by factors you have no understanding of. And, <laughs> and it seems like madness. I mean, yeah. we spend so much of our time deliberating, weighing pros and cons and everything. And the fact that we manage to succeed in this world to whatever extent we do, um, you know, <laughs> it's just... It, 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 I mean, in the it, case of getting married for both of you, it was just whoever would say yes. So really, it was outside of your control, <laughs> completely outside of your control, even though you deliberated. <laughs> I, you know what this sounds like to me is that it is, is like a lot of these issues where it's just these wild swings where one side is correcting the other's extremism. Right. Right now, philosophy, it seems like every day some new philosopher has engaged in some terrible act of sexual harassment. And now for the first time ever, we're getting press. Philosophers are getting press, but we're getting press as being this huge culture of just massive uh, exploitation and harassment yeah. and uh, douchebaggery douche and, and douchebaggery right <laughs> and so of course and that's just not how it is you know in in most departments and in among most philosophers there just isn't this cycle of intimidation and harassment so then there are people who want to correct against the yeah. slate article who by saying this kind of stuff never goes on and that's not true either but when one side is going extreme you want to correct the whole way on the other side and Tamara, I'm, I'm actually comfortable with that way of putting it which is i don't say in my article i don't believe that unconscious influences play no role i think these experiments are good ones i think it makes a difference i think it's worth knowing and i give a million examples of this so i'm happy to view this as a corrective to people who think reason are is irrelevant are you know reason is incredibly important i'm i'm happy to view this as pushing for a pendulum swing back it's not going to be a categorical argument, which is reason is all that matters. But I think we've gone too far in the other direction. But it's a really interesting question, substantive question. I do think that you two have a really interesting disagreement, which is how much these other factors play a role in our just everyday decision making and our actions in our lives. Right. And you seem to think that 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 it plays less like when it comes to these job interviews. I do believe that. I think for, for just about every domain of interest, it's going to turn out to be the boring things, the things that people could consciously articulate and own up to, rather than the cool, irrelevant, bizarre things that social psychologists like to point out. This isn't to deride the social psychology work. I mean, take a project that David and I have been involved in. Um, I think disgust, intuitions of disgust and cleanliness and so on, do influence your judgments in all sorts of ways. And that's really worth knowing. Right. It's, it tells us something about the mind. But you know, I actually, the mind. maybe there is a difference of degree in the way that Paul and I argue, um, are arguing, but, but I actually think that, that I'm on the same page here. And every time I give a talk about disgust now, I always point out, if you really, really want to know what's causing people's political behavior or predict it, ask them what state they were born in. Right. Like these are the kinds of questions that will really, really uh, tell you. And our effects are, are are reliable, but they're small. Yeah. And they're interesting to me for theoretical reasons, because uh, one might not have expected that they would have any influence, but certainly not because I think it determines political orientation, for God's sake. That would be a horrible world in which, <laughs> in which that, was the, that was playing a major role. Are you that confident that whatever other reasons people have for holding their political opinions no, I, are I'm better not. than, I, than no, like, no, no, you're right, like I'm not. The, how I'm, clean the bathroom was? 
No, I'm 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 not. I'm mainly pointing out that in our studies, I, I would never make that claim. But yeah, I mean, it is probably in Paul in your article, you do point out the political domain is probably right. And, and I want to sort of I'm going to go back yeah. and I'm going to concede a point, which is as I say at the end of the article, a political domain is funny. So if it's mm-hmm. true, as David suggests, that um, your political beliefs are largely determined by the state in which you were born, then that suggests it's not rational. Mm-hmm. That's not an argument that I was born right. in Kansas or, you know, born in Massachusetts. <laughs> right, right, um, right. So I think political affiliations, affiliation is one of the things which is driven not by unconscious priming and all of that stuff, but by cultural factors. And so, you know, it's a moral as old as Herodotus, which is that we tend to absorb the values of our culture. And just like we tend to absorb our language and we don't make a moral judgment, sorry, we don't make a reason judgment. This is preferable than the other ones. We just scoop it up. Well, and, you know, there's a difference between sort of unconscious, uh, unconscious influences that are surprising and the kind of cultural knowledge that is shared where you don't have to argue that it is um, completely impervious to to argument, because at least I'm aware of my beliefs. And right. I'm aware that that's I right. hold these opinions. And that's a different kind of non-reasoned route to to holding a belief, but it's very different than the order of the presentation of the political brochures. That's right. You and I actually have published a paper with Eric Ullman on this, which, which makes, it, uh, I think, an interesting distinction, which is there's, we may be influenced by all sorts of implicit things, but for the most part, we're aware that these things influence us. We're right. aware, for instance, of our stereotypes. Right. Um, right. And so that doesn't really make them rational, but it makes them less surprising or less quirky. So, you know, people associate old people with walking slow. Right. Okay. But if you, if you were asked ahead of time, do you, you say, sure, that makes sense. Right. Right. And if you ask it, and there's plenty of research showing that if you just genuinely ask people in private about whether they hold uh, negative attitudes toward members of other races that they wish they didn't hold, yeah. then people fully admit it. It's not as if it's epistemically completely inaccessible. And maybe more controversially, but I've been, but I think to some extent such our stereotypes and our attitudes towards other groups and other races are rational. They aren't always moral. We might want to disavow them and we want to act to stop them. But they're not, they're not this crazy, stupid quirk. The example I give, because it's sort of a, a, a safe and obvious example, is if, if a woman's walking down a dark street in the middle of the night and there's a man standing at the corner, she, has, she reasonably should she be more worried than if it were a woman standing at the right. corner. Um, right. And that's reasoning based on stereotypes. And it's right. damn reasonable. And you can... Dave's example would have been like if you're at a bar, everyone's <laughs> putting in for trying to split the bill and your bill is short and there's a Jew at the table. Like, <laughs> like, that, that, I, that, that, you know, it's reasonable to assume that it was the Jew that didn't put in enough money. I'm that's such always, a convenient goy for you to, <laughs> to, to project yourself hate. That's always Dave's go-to example, the cheap Jew. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Right. Uh, can I can I get can I read you the quote that I never thought yeah. you could write something that made me mad and I guess it's towards the end of the essay where you are um, mm-hmm. championing reason and, and its relation to self control, right? Yeah. Um, and you're talking about the Michel um, results yep, yep. and marshmallows. Uh, so here's what you say: You say what he found was that kids who waited for two marshmallows did better in school and on their SATs as adolescents and ended up with better self esteem, mental health 
relationship quality and income as adults. I would have done well on that, by the way, because I don't like marshmallows. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's what it's all book, about, really. <laughs> exactly. <it's> like, <laughs> in his recent book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Stephen Pinker, Dave, your boy, Stephen Pinker notes that a high level of st- self-control benefits not just individuals, but also society. Europe, he writes, witnessed a 30-fold drop in its homicide rates between the medieval and modern periods, and this, he argued had much to do with the change from the culture of honor to a culture of dignity, which replies... Which oh, that's you're a champion of the culture of honor. Right. And I don't see how a culture of honor has anything to do with lack of restraint. Those things just seem complete. In fact, uh, honor often requires, cultures of honor often require a tremendous amount of restraint and self-control. No, fair enough. Fair I enough. mean, there's, so, there's so a way, thinking, though. It, yeah, no, go ahead. I'm thinking of one particular case, though, which is, suppose there's a provocation, an insult to you. I think a culture of honor expresses the natural inclination to strike back. And I think a culture of dignity staunches that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so I think there's a specific instance I'm thinking about, which is someone spits on your shoes or, you know, is rude to you and everything. Honor says you can go ahead and, and, and retaliate. Dignity says, no, this... You have to hold back. And I think, so I think in that case, dignity requires more self-control than honor. In, in, I mean, yes, there are cases. <laughs> of course, there are going to be cases where but those are the dignity cases requires relevant, more self-control those, than honor. And there's yeah. going to be cases where honor requires more self-control than but dignity. But when in cases of homicide, does honor require more self-control than dignity? The, as a mechanism that gives rise to homicide in both cultures, when is it the case that the homicide in the honor culture was was committed with more self-control than in the dignity culture. I mean, look, it's it's this culture of dignity, culture of dignity that gets us into these wars where we're using drones. But that's not really relevant. I mean, there's a way in which you could say self too much self-control actually makes us more violent. And I, I would grant that. But I'm saying if your claim is that cultures of honor. No, but I don't a, think that self-control. I don't think you're, we're controlling ourselves by using drones. I forget I drones. Forget. Let's talk about homicide, like interpersonal violence. Like, so when I, is I, it the case? So I, I could give an example. I mean, I, I see Tamler's point, which is there are cases. Suppose somebody kills my father. The honor code may demand I retaliate. Suppose I don't want to retaliate. Suppose I'm really happy where I am and it's all set and everything. There are times where honor might force me to to inhibit things I want to do and push me to do things I don't want to do in service of honor. Is that is that your point? Well, that's def- that that should have been my point <laughs> rather than bringing up drones. And, but I, I, uh, yeah. think of uh, right. Count of Monte Cristo. I, then it becomes a matter of empirical claim. I, I guess like the it's an empirical question as to uh, whether there's more impulsive murders in honor cultures. Right, I mean, like I, I think there are, I, I'm not disputing that, but there's more, to, but, but from that, it doesn't entail that, there, that you can equate a culture of dignity, which is defined as a culture of self-control versus a culture of honor, just because there might be more impulsive homicides in yeah. cultures of honor, right? So, no, I, I, I see the point. Would you be comfortable if I modulated the claim by saying increased self-control just in general makes us more peaceable? And makes it a better world. Uh, well, I, I think it's a case-by-case basis. Like if some kid is getting bullied and I'm another kid and I control myself and don't step in and intervene, that's not something we should mm-hmm. prize. That's not something me, we should call a better society. Let me give you a thought society. experiment. Suppose there's a virus. And if this virus was unleashed, you could unleash it if you want. 
it would affect people's frontal lobes and affect their capacity for self-control and diminish it. Would you release the virus? I sure as hell wouldn't. Right. I, I, yeah. What if there was yeah, a virus? I, what if the virus that would increase people's self-control? I would release it in a second. I, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think some people have yeah. too much self-control and impulsiveness can be really? a good thing. Yeah, uh, but... But you don't really... In, in romantic comedies. <laughs> <laughs> a world in which everybody acted on their impulse would be a world much like the animal world, I think. Right? I, I don't think it's that... Well, right. I think but, I get the subtlety that Tamler... That we're you're... avoiding these two extremes, right? And we're, yeah. and we're just trying to increase it a little or decrease it a little. And, I mean, um, Paul, wants, Paul wants us to have self-control troll to... Uh, to not be empathic to block our empathy century. <laughs> that's that is the virus that is the virus <laughs> uh, should we take a quick break and wrap up yeah sure. very bad wizards uh in this last short segment hopefully short segment i just wanted to talk to paul about his views on empathy that we touched on um at the end of last segment and in particular what um what he thought of at least in the last episode i referred to the movie the watchmen and the book the watchmen and described a villain who was um utilitarian in his methods but that made himself mm-hmm. feel great a great deal of empathy. Do you think that if this person could exist, this would actually be a better sort of person? That that is, you seem to argue that empathy gets in the way because we are insensitive to to numbers. But if there were a person who could actually feel for all of those numbers, wouldn't that be a better moral agent? Yeah, I guess so. As long as they could also feel for the suffering of those that would hypothetically occur if a certain action didn't take place. So, so for instance, right. you know, suppose there's a vaccine program and a, and a child dies. Right. So you want to feel empathy for the child, for the child's family. But before you shut down the program, you also have to somehow register the suffering of kids who will get the disease if, because they didn't get access to the vaccine. If, if, you're, right. if, if, if your character could do that too, then empathy is basically sort of a measure of... Uh, basically, he's a, he's a consequentialist, except... His consequentialist uh, judgments are recorded in terms of varying degrees of empathy, and I'm fine with that. But don't right. you think, though, that there's something 
too easy about pressing the button. And there's yeah. something not virtuous about just sacrificing an entire city, even if it is New York, and, and just <laughs> not feeling the cost of that. Sh- shouldn't Meryl Streep feel the cost of what she did? Shouldn't a person feel what they're doing, even if... I, I have this, this sort of standard intuitions here, which is yes. And Phil Tetlock has done work on this, where you give somebody a hard moral decision, and people like them more if they struggle over it, if they're miserable about it. They don't like people who are quick thinkers and who, and who decide. I, 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 feel, I have that intuition. I think it's unreasonable. I think it's irrational. I think the world would be better if Meryl Streep went on with her life and didn't commit suicide at the end and didn't suffer. Wait, is that what happens? I think so. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so look, suppose I, I have this awful choice and I yeah. do the right thing. And, and yeah, I should probably feel bad. Most people feel bad about it. Tamara, I think your intuition there is just because most normal people feel bad at things like that. And so the fact that I wouldn't suggest there's something terribly wrong with my character that worries you, but, and, and, and maybe should worry you because I'd be a very atypical person. But I don't think in the long run, if everybody was such that we didn't feel regret after doing the right thing, I don't think it would make the world worse. Walter, Walter made the claim the other day that guilt, guilt is a useless emotion. But I can't, the, the thing is, I, I, you know, this I is guess where Strawson. Yeah, I get the math. I get that in these these you know these big decisions where you have to weigh the the thousands of lives you might you might want somebody to do the cold math, but but in our everyday interactions with people, if you were to have this ultimate sort of Josh Green idyllic world or now Paul Bloom idyllic world, I think it would take a great Mm -hmm. deal out Mm -hmm. of our interactions, and and to maybe even to such an extent that life would be uh, more miserable on average. That, that we we couldn't feel yeah, for it's us. possible but so the thing is you got to choose and if you're going to choose choose the being if you're if you're free to create any any set of of beings i think that given that the amount of time that we we need to make these large sort of consequentialist decisions compared to the amount of time that we're sort of helping out a friend in need or or meeting our sort of yeah. family family obligations I would I would put empathy in them and then hope that reason can can downregulate the empathy when it comes to the tough times. But that doesn't mean eliminate the empathy or the empathy is a necessary evil. It just means that it shouldn't obstruct really obvious right. consequentialist choices. Right. And that's hard, but that's that I'd rather have to fight that battle like the downregulating of my own empathy than to fight the battle of mustering any motivation to like take care of my own sick child. I think if you're living in a little world uh, with your friends and family, and that's, that's probably the right way to do it. I think empathy is a reliable guide and this consequential stuff is unnecessary and superfluous, but we don't live in a little world. We have these, these big decisions to make that we're part of in our government. Tamara, you don't like, you don't like drone attacks, but your empathy, you know, your empathy is a poor guide to whether drone attacks are good or bad. That's true. Um, and and well, I, I, it's not. I don't think empathy. It, that that's more my weird, you know, virtue ethics flirtation. You that think makes honor, me not like drone attacks. Bombs. Honorable drones can do it. <laughs> I, I, I just think when you're killing somebody, that it requires war requires some element of risk on both sides, and when you lose that, you lose something seriously morally important. That, I, that's not from empathy, I don't think. Uh, but anyway, yeah, you're right that I don't like drones. <laughs> I, I, I guess I think empathy is a useful guide for local interactions, but it's a very poor guide for big interactions. 
And the big interactions, the big choices affect more people. It, you know, it can involve, they take, take global warming. Some people believe global warming or climate change, as we're supposed to call it these days, um, could, could affect the lives of billions of people. If you rely on your empathy to guide you in this, it does nothing. It's just silent, just about. Yeah. And, and if you think that this really matters, then, then using empathy as a default and reason as a last resort is going to lead to, you know, tremendous suffering. Right. But if you remove empathy, you might not even get consequentialist reasoning off the ground. And that's something that I'm worried about, right? I, you know, I, I've often wondered, and that really is an empirical question. So yeah. I'm, I'm becoming I mean, well, the this. psychopath isn't a consequentialist, really. Right. right. I'm increasingly convinced by Jesse Prince's point, which is there's other motivators. You could be motivated by injustice or by anger. Yeah, but then you have all of the same problems with those yes. emotions and actually yes. more problems. With Fair enough. You need some sort <laughs> and of And what's spark. the basis for the injustice? Right. Look, you, well, it, it need not be empathy. Yeah. But, but look, I'm not, I'm not bickering with David Hume here. <laughs> I think you need some motivational spark. Right. Otherwise, right. You, know, you, you need to care enough to push the button that would save 100,000 people. Right. right. I don't doubt that. But yeah. there's a huge difference between that and saying that empathy should be sort of your driving force while making these decisions. Right. Maybe, maybe I'll end with this last question. Do you think that in your baby studies, um, that when Karen and Ky Kylie Hamlin and, and you and Karen, um, when you, this sort of at the heart of the Just Babies book that, that you published, um, when you see, when the infants see a triangle pushing another, uh, the ball down or helping it go up, and the infants reliably are distinguishing between these two, right? They seem to, and then you show this with toddlers in other ways. From a very early age, it seems there's some valence judgment going on that one, that the helper is a good guy or the, the hinderer is a bad guy. Right. Do you think that that is, uh, at its heart, an emotional reaction? No, I don't. I think, I think it, it's, it's a moral judgment. And you I you think, do think I of do. it as a full-blown a full moral judgment. Well, Whoa. is it full blown? It's our proto moral judgment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, by full blown, I mean I mean yeah. equivalent to the judgment that I would make if I saw somebody hurting somebody else. Yeah, I think so. I think so. No, the, the, the four people who are still with us are going to be. Like, <laughs> Don't worry, we'll, we'll edit the shit out of the good points you made. <laughs> this is like the, the end of the first season of Sherlock, where Moriarty were there at the swimming pool. Oh, yeah. Oh, with the bomb and everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love Sherlock. Uh, Paul show called ever. like a babe making a full-blown moral judgment. Now we got to wait like eight months and to find but out so, how he defends it. And so, so one reason why I think it's moral is it connects the notions of punishment. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's important because otherwise there's sort of killjoy explanations like self-preservation, the baby's approaching one and think it'd be nicer. But mm -hmm. I think that the punishment data, which is trickling in, suggests it's moral. Um, a perfectly reasonable theory is that the output of the more of the system is an emotion of sort of um, approval or disapproval. And it's that that's driving it. And my feeling is that it's not fully that. We, we did some studies, Kylie Hamlin did some studies where she filmed the faces of the babies, look at emotional responses. And you get some of that, but it's not that strong. The judgment seems to be stronger than emotion. Hmm. And you know, as an adult, you could watch somebody slap somebody else and think, what an awful thing.
But actually, for whatever reason, you just don't get upset about it. You're 100% sure that was an awful thing, but it's not that, you know, you're just not that, in, that, that emotionally moved. Right. It is, in fact, there are websites dedicated to watching people get in fights and enjoying it. <laughs> and non-empathic creatures should, should... Is this really... what we have to end on? Yes. <laughs> does, does either of you have anything better than that? That's, that's a low bar. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to just thank you, and on behalf of our students at the University of Houston. And uh, So Paul came down and he gave a, a public lecture at our university and also had a seminar with our, our Phrenesis fellows, and they just really enjoyed it. So oh, man, I, had, I had such a good time. Thank you for inviting me. That the seminar was terrific. You have an amazing group there. I just had had a, you know an amazing time talking with them. Well, I'd like yeah, to thank yeah. Paul for giving me my most most highly cited publication. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll uh, get on that. All right, well, thanks, thanks a lot. Paul. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Thank you for having me. 